Something's got to keep those uh, Diet Cokes cold. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you on multiple stations across North America. Here on the Big Talker 1067 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osofsky, brisking in the cold and trying to get through uh, our beautiful dark winter. And I'm joined as always on the line by my trusty colleague, David Clement, who's uh, up there in Toronto. How goes it, Sir David? Uh, it's going. It's going well. It's going well. Um, yeah, no no real complaints. No real complaints. Excited for another great show. We have a fantastic guest coming up for the second part of, uh, of our program, uh, Fergus Hodgson. So very excited for our guest to listen to what he has to say about all sorts of great topics like inflation. Um, and uh, yeah, Looking forward to another week. And we will even throw in a little debate about uh, Western Canadian independence in there. It will be kind of uh, interesting. Uh, so if you are listening here uh, to this program on the radio, please head on over to consumerchoiceradio.com. And also if you are listening to the podcast version, which you can subscribe to there, you'll notice that we got a web redesign. We've got our own site there looking good, um, featuring all of the episodes, show notes, and highlighting some of our previous interviews. And David, it's been a great year in terms of interviews. I was just going through a lot of the videos. I mean, we've had Steve Forbes on, no doubt. We've had State Senator Jeff Brandis on twice. Uh, we've had uh, Ashley Baker talking everything related to, uh, to trust uh, regulation and tech regulation and everything with the judicial system. I mean, we've had Canadian MPs. Uh, it's been a pretty busy year and i think the website hopefully will illuminate that a bit more uh you'll see some of the great interviews that we've had uh also melissa chen spectator usa former governor mark sanford i mean it's it's just been a very rich year for consumer choice radio so hopefully our our listeners will appreciate that yeah yeah and i hope that we can get some of those guests back on the program uh i know that they would probably have a lot to say about what is going on um, in both Canada and the United States, whether that be economic policy, the Biden administration, trade, what to do about China. Um, so yeah, here's to uh, hopefully some some high-profile guests to be joining our program in the coming weeks. And we'll, we'll try to get that uh, going, and um, we'll have Fergus's interview coming up after the first break, so you'll hear that here. Uh, but David, since we're we're started on the show, we're nearing the end of the shortest month of the year. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's keeping uh, <laughs> keeping us, you know, pretty. Uh, I would say occupied. Uh, surely the markets, everything looking red uh, the last two weeks, which ain't good. Um, we have cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin going through the roof and then going back down. All kinds of talk on social media regulation. Uh, it's a busy time, but I uh, figured we might as well take a take a little break and do our consumer corner. And uh, for those of you who have not listened to this in the past, uh, consumer corner is just a small segment where we discuss some of the 
uh, latest consumer innovations that we've become aware of, uh, whether it be products or services or apps, um, great things that I know that many of our listeners might be interested in. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to be able to also sit back and marvel at some of the things that we have, not just you know the great Amazon deliveries that we have to our door, but also the great services uh, they're able to get, shows, all the rest. So David, mm-hmm. anything in your consumer corner that you would uh, want to bring up? Yeah, I mean, one interesting one is this new platform called Noom. N-O-O-M. Um, it's for those who... Is this a reading thing? No, it's for those who are looking to lose weight. Um, Ooh, okay. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm usually pretty skeptical of these things. Um, I, I just find that a lot of it is, is just too too repetitive, and it's really not informing me of anything um, new or... or innovative but i will say that i did sign up for noom um and it's a great platform it is actually a really effective way to kind of change some of your habits um and lose weight for anyone else who was interested in that and it's working um on a personal note so um huge huge praise for for that um and and I'm sure I I know for a fact anyone in Canada has certainly seen the advertisements on TV, um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been a great experience so far. Interesting, yeah. There's a, not a sponsor, by the way, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Noom, pretty interesting. That's cool. So I have another one that I've um, been messing with for probably the last couple of months. I found it very interesting. It's an app called Zero. Okay. Um, so this is actually an intermittent fasting app, uh, whereby you can track. Uh, your intermittent fasts. You can use the various scales, whether you want to do a uh, 16-8 program where for 16 hours you fast and within that eight-hour window you eat, or there's 24, or there are people who only eat one meal a day. Uh, There's all kinds of kind of cool things where it's gamified it. I'm four days in, so I'm incredibly hungry, and it's like (laughs) it's getting on dinner time here, uh, at least when we're recording, so I definitely want to do that. But the, the app is great. I actually heard it mentioned on the Joe Rogan experience. Yes. Uh, Peter he, Atia is a doctor who uh, I think he is behind the app, and uh, he, he definitely promoted that. And uh, it, what I really love is it just has a lot of good consumer information and knowledge mm-hmm. and little guides. I think that kind of stuff is pretty cool and empowering for a lot of people who might have never thought about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing where it's like, where do you add value in the like nutrition and health space? Because, I mean, different gyms can be like, oh, well, we now have an online platform for you to do workouts at home. And, I mean, that might work for some people. I know for a lot of people it really doesn't. But what makes what you just described and and the Noom app maybe a little different is that it's actually tackling some of the habits and behaviors um, that are obviously intertwined with your overall health. So um, I think that it's it's certainly a great step forward and i mean what's also interesting is i think that the pandemic has kind of and i don't know if you feel the same um but maybe made consumers more health conscious than ever before where people are really starting to think about ways they can be active what they are eating it's like almost as life got less busy we started to reevaluate things a little more i don't know if you're if you if you see the same thing in your day-to-day life well it's uh definitely it's looking for alternatives because at least for us, the gyms have been closed for many months. 
so you know you don't have that option. Luckily, I do live in a larger city where I can walk around and usually get my ten thousand steps in pretty easily. You know, just doing uh, you know all kinds of, of things around town. Uh, but it is true that with all the technology that we have in our smartphones, you know, you have that choice. You're able to find these alternatives as well. And uh, it, it's tough though not having. I know a lot of people have home gyms and things like this. I'm I'm relegated to just using. Uh, small resistance bands in my office, but uh, this kind of stuff is, is really interesting and cool. I know there's many different apps and things that have come online, but I, I do think people are somewhat more conscious, um, you know, on certain days. And then again, the despair of uh, the continued lockdowns and things also keep people indoors a bit more, and they probably drink more than they, they probably should. But, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that we at least believe that people have it within them to make the best decision for themselves. Uh, all the tools are out there, no doubt. And there's, there's a lot of great things to come from that. Mm-hmm. I think so even, on- e- even just like my Fitbit. So like being able to know, okay, how did I sleep last night? Like what, what did my sleep patterns look like? How many steps did I get in? How many calories did I burn? All of that information just kind of keeps those, healthier outcomes and decisions in the back of your mind. And it's been super useful. So I'm I'm sure there's lots of listeners who maybe aren't in, or maybe are in the same boat or maybe aren't. Now they're going to listen and go, okay, what are some of these cool services? How do we, um, how do we take whatever that next step forward is? Well, it's the middle of winter. I mean, for me in the summer, it was, I was on the road bike as much as I could. Obviously I can't do that now. Uh, It'd be a little too dangerous. Um, So it's been a nice change of pace. Yeah, I, I wish I could say I had a Peloton or something like this, but uh, yeah, actually, in, that in was, Austria, it's pretty cost cost prohibitive. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's another interesting, an, another interesting kind of in the fitness world is Peloton. They just came out with their treadmill, um, so now you can do like running classes on the treadmill, and they do zero percent financing, so you finance the treadmill over a couple of years. Uh, so really cool, innovative ways for people to tackle some of these things now the real question will be as things open up are those still going to be as attractive i don't know maybe people just kind of ignore or or let the uh, the peloton collect dust um but we'll certainly see how that goes you're listening to consumer choice radio consumerchoiceradio.com we're in the consumer corner here a couple of things that I wanted to uh, recommend quite quickly. So I'm obviously a fan of the various streaming services. And, uh, you know, we're in an age where we do have uh, a lot of choice when it comes to that. But there are a lot of things that, you know, are very restrictive, especially when you're talking about content and geo-blocking, uh, which makes it, David, so that if I recommend to you a program or a show, oftentimes because you're there in Canada, you're not able to watch it. Uh, you're not able to see it, or you know, perhaps it's on some other platform. Uh, so I'm a huge user of VPNs, um, using that a lot, uh, specifically to watch even like the NASCAR race, which is really difficult to do. Uh, the F1, if anyone watches F1 or is interested in that, they do have their own app and their own TV service, and they were able to get all the rights so that anyone in the world can subscribe to this, can get practices, can get races. Uh, the F1 TV sort of app platform is amazing. It's great. Uh, you can follow along during the race live. Unfortunately, NASCAR does not have that. 
and uh, that, that's something to where they're a bit lacking. I don't know in terms of sports um, what you know more of. I do know that at least for some of the sports that I'm interested in or watch, some of that is, is very, very difficult because it's basically in the U.S. and there's all these like strange local blackouts that sometimes happen. Uh, but I, I do love that there are apps and things like the F1 uh, TV platform that uh, allows you to follow this stuff and and really stay abreast of, of everything that's happening. It's a pretty cool experience. Yeah, I mean, for me here, I don't think you could have a better time to be a sports fan. You have, there's NHL hockey on, uh, I think when the season started, it was 130 days in a row that there would be a game on. So pretty, if you're a hockey fan, I mean, you, you the world is your oyster. You got golf pretty much every weekend. Um, not necessarily major tournaments, but covered television. If you're a Raptors fan, same thing. Um, so it really is. I mean, and we haven't even gotten to baseball season yet. So we're going to hit that, that perfect time period where you get baseball, basketball, hockey, golf, all of your other sports on at the same time. So it might make, uh, might make staying home a little more bearable. And do you think, um, are you seeing that there's a huge injection of politics into the sports that you're watching right now, or is it pretty absent from what you've seen? Um, well, actually, it's, it, it was absent until um, there was a hit piece put out about Arteri Panarin, who plays for the New York Rangers. Um, so he came out in support of uh, the opposition. So he's Russian. He came out in support of Navalny, I think. Oh, I'm Navalny. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I saw this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, mysteriously, um, as soon as he had done that, there was a a report in Russia that he had beat up a woman in 2011. Um, and the New York Rangers promptly issued a statement saying that this is bogus, and they stand by um, they stand by Panarin, and that this is retrib- retribution. Um, so that's not politics in the ordinary sense of North American politics, but it is troubling. I mean, we know that people who speak out against Putin, especially high profile athletes, there are all sorts of consequences that can happen. He has family that's still in Russia. So that's certainly complicated. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the big ones that stood out to me was it, it looked like Putin has has struck again. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know that. Uh, we, we, you know, we would think it would be all the stuff from last year that would be playing out, but never did we think it would be international uh, sports affected by that, David. And I know mm-hmm. you had one update you wanted to bring here before our, our first break, um, but... Uh, Just more disappointment. Wanna... Just more disappointment yeah. that the Trudeau cabinet abstained from the, uh, the genocide vote. Um, it passed unanimously, but cabinet did not actually vote on it which is so so depressing um just i mean disappointment is not a word strong enough to describe it but uh, we deserve better from from our federal leaders and you'll get the what you deserve here in segment two so we're going to move on you're listening to consumer choice radio uh consumerchoiceradio.com we were right back after this And we are back here on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga, 960 AM, Peel Region, Ontario. We have on a great friend of mine uh, who is a 
a commentator you've likely seen come across your feeds at some point. We're speaking with Fergus Hodgson. Fergus is the founder and executive editor of the Latin American intelligence publication Econ Americas. He's also the roving editor of the Gold Newsletter. They have a, the Gold Newsletter podcast, which is great. And he's also a research associate with the Frontier Center for Public Policy in Canada. So Fergus, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, thank you, Yale. I'm excited to be with you. Yes. And with and I, David. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, we all know each other. We've uh, collaborated on multiple things. And now we get to talk about the news of the day. And I think there's a lot that uh, would be interesting to our listeners. Uh, I think number one is one of your columns. Uh, you are published quite often in the Epoch Times. And uh, this article is entitled, Four Signs That Inflation Has Arrived. We're obviously in a new era of, of finance when it comes to government, of stimulus spending related to COVID bills and all this kind of stuff. But if you could just give us kind of the breakdown of the four signs that inflation is here and uh, here to stay. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm really pleased to talk about this one, Yale. And we all have the hindsight of the 2008 uh, global financial crisis where a lot of us expected big inflation that just didn't materialize. And so then the immediate question is, well, why is this time different? And we've gotten to a point where there are two big changes. One is that the level of monetary stimulus is much greater than in the past, right? We're actually going to helicopter money where they just, people are just dropping cash from the sky. Well, not literally, but almost. And then the breakdown in supply chains, right? So the, the transport networks, the movement of people is so severely inhibited that is limited supply. So I wrote this about oh, maybe five months ago now, but basically I said that there are clear signals that we actually already have inflation. And the first of course, is that the Federal Reserve itself has inadvertently admitted this fact by changing the way it calculates its inflation target. So the Federal Reserve publicly states that it will shoot for 2% inflation, but it, it has waffled that and said, because it's been lower than 2% in the past, it's actually going to allow it to go higher than that to compensate. And my basic view is that's just accepting that we're going to have higher than 2% inflation already have it. Now, the second major one, which is a wonderful development as far as I'm concerned, is the rise of non-governmental inflation measures. And in fact, there is one at MIT which has this online inflation measure, which takes, I mean, just thousands, hundreds of thousands of prices all across the internet and calculates their changes. So we're getting basically a crowdsourced measure of inflation. So a fascinating development. Of course, this does not capture everything, but there is, a, there is also a, what's called the Chapwood Index, which has been measuring inflation in the major cities of the United States. And that's been going at about 10% for the last five years, in fact, that and so we're already at a, at a very high level and just the latest increases will hasten that. And when I wrote the article from memory, it had already gone through about 10% through the first half of 2020. I can't remember what the, the level is since then, but basically we're seeing private metrics that show higher levels of inflation than the, um, than the government metrics that so said that in the United States would be the, uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, I think it is. I'm, I'm not sure right now, but no, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so 
these are, and these metrics are actually relatively resolute. They're relatively neutral. There's no real gaming them or playing games. It's, it's quite simple. The, the other elements in the, in the four were that there are particular areas of the economy where inflation is hitting harder, right? So in basic commodities, in staple items that are not easily avoided, right? So what happens is that the way government metrics calculate inflation, they will try to focus on what we can, you know, our changing spending patterns. But the fact is that things that we cannot avoid are rising in price, which means that it's basically an inevitability that, that the numbers will appear in there, even the official metrics soon. The, the final one is just the measure of gold. You know, I hold to my own podcast on gold or precious metals. And the fact is that gold has, is even now, there's been a l- recent downward trend over the last couple of weeks, but even now gold is up 18% on last year. And I'm, you know, I just did a show recently about the, if we look at regression from the past 20 odd years, I think 30 years actually, gold is set to go up to between $2,000 and $3,000 US dollars this year. And it's at around uh, 1750, 1800 of late. So there are many signs it's happening. And even prominent economists actually are getting on board with this and acknowledging that inflation is basically here. Uh, Steve Hankey is the most prominent one I can refer to. Uh, He's with Johns Hopkins University and the Cato Institute. And to our Canadian listeners, my guess is going to be worse in Canada, actually, because all these policy changes have been even more aggressive up there than here. And yeah, so both sides, the supply uh, impediment and the fiscal stimulus, relatively speaking, uh, these are stronger. Yeah, I I mean, I know in Canada already, so there's housing inflation, the housing market is hotter than it's ever been. You're seeing Mm. housing, you're seeing kind of true middle-class housing go from 580, 580,000, and then being up bid to the high sevens or low eights, which I mean, for me, just looks unsustainable. This, this um, is suburban Ontario? Yeah, yeah, suburban Ontario. So we're not talking like downtown core. We're talking between 80 to 150 kilometers outside of Toronto. And you're seeing this this huge upward swing where if you just look at the metrics, like you'll see a house double in the last five years, which is something that I don't think we've ever seen before. And then of course, there's also the good side for Canada as well. I know that uh, Sylvain Chalbra in, uh, in, in, from Dalhousie is projecting that most basket goods um, like vegetables and bakery goods and meat are gonna rise three and a half to six and a half percent in 2021. So we're really starting to see other classes just outside of assets start to inflate upwards, which I think is particularly dangerous. I agree, mate. This is not just limited to the United States or Canada either in my home country of New Zealand. Even though the country is basically blocked off from the world, house prices are at record highs. Of course, it's because of such easy credit. And of course, that has to go somewhere. And it just means that the returns available on real estate in places like Canada are just less, right? So rents have not risen at the pace of the, the housing prices. So your, you know, your, your capitalization rates are lower. It's just less lucrative, but so long as the interest rates are lower and I don't, you know, this is one actually opinion from Steve Hankey that the interest rates the, from the US Federal Reserve and from the Bank of Canada just will have to rise in the near future. 
There's no getting around it. And there's gonna be a great deal of pain when that happens because first, all these governments are, have basically taken on huge debts and how the, the interest payments are gonna consume a greater and greater level of tax, tax revenues. And also because that will then make lending much less exciting and it'll take the heat out of the housing market. So people who have bought at the top will feel it. Well, yeah, and then you'll also have the issue of, of folks who have maybe overextended um, on the assumption that, well, yeah, they're gonna buy in at 810 now, but in 10 years, it'll be worth 1.2 million. And then you have the prospect of higher taxes, you have the prospect of maybe a rate hike, um, so their rate goes up. So if they're at the cusp of what they can afford, they then become one small shock away from falling into that deferral or default stage. There's one of the, there's one of the element which just occurred to me last night because there's a new report out from the Frontier Center or the uh, it's a Demography a Housing Affordability Survey, which is relevant to consumer choice. And it refers to affordability. I'm, I'm guessing it's a bit delayed and that would be data from 2019 or early 2020. But my guess is too, that once housing gets to a certain level, once it gets to the point of the Vancouver and Toronto levels, there's gonna actually become popular resistance for to say this is getting out of hand we either need public housing or we do need to open it up the people who've relied on regulatory protection to inflate their housing prices i think they're going to come in for a rude awakening that at some point that's going to come back to haunt them that that protection can go away and they'll they'll, they'll feel it so that i do know in new zealand that is happening that there's a great deal of resistance now to the fact that housing house prices have gone just sky high yeah, it may be, it may be the, the, the ultimate battle between the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs. Um, for, and for, for listeners, that's the not in my backyard and the yes in my backyard. And I use NIMBY to describe those who oppose pretty much all development. I mean, I see it right here where I live in Oakville. There's resistance to pretty much anything of remote high density, which is, of course, needed. And so we may be in for a rude awakening um, in the, the greater Toronto area where you start to see a real kind of popular push for an increased supply. Now, is that going to happen? I don't know. It, it's, it's all done at the local level, which is a very complicated level of politics. Uh, but yeah, it's... That's a challenge, David, because don't you see, you see the tension too, because many of us, maybe we, we have nostalgia for the old, old way of our towns or the, the net, the, the, the appearance, but at the same time, if you've got a growing population, what are you going to do? Right? So it, I really, it is a difficulty because much like you, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, I assume Yale, you have nostalgia for maybe the, the Montreal landscape or downtown or whatever. So we don't want to just railroad that, but at the same time, people need a place to stay. And it just shows, it just seems that people really want to be clustered in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, uh, in Canada, that's where the work is. Well, these are the best places to be, you know. <laughs> uh, we're speaking with Fergus Hodgson here on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Fergus, you write about a lot of different things that are, I think, interesting to consumer choice, markets, finance. Uh, you're now doing some deep studies on finance. I thought of having you on in uh, the wake of everything that was happening with GameStop and the market sure. and meme stocks. Uh, I think at this point, you probably have a, a more technical understanding, but, you know, sort of what is your reaction to what has played out over the stock market the past couple of weeks, crypto going through the roof and now back down again. And it just seems as if we're in a really strange time. What, what do you think about all that? Yeah, the key insight or takeaway from me, for, from my perspective, 
is that there's been a declining level of trust in both corporations and financial markets. The irony is that as uh, these markets become more open to the, like, the broader masses, their distrust has become manifest in how they participate with it, right? So there's actually great data from uh, the Chicago Booth and Kellogg School business schools. And they show that basically anger, anger about the economy has gone up in 2020. Surprise, you know. <laughs> and the financial trust has gone down. Uh, so the anger is the highest since 2013. And financial trust, it's, it's, I think it's still higher than it was in previous years. But after 20, 2008, there was kind of a re resurgence. Trust was growing that has gone back down again. So basically we're seeing the manifestation of this lack of trust in financial markets, the sense that there are bailouts going on, that they're unfair, that when there are these, you know, COVID-19 supposed bailouts that the, the, the scraps, the leftover scraps go to the people. And so, and the protected classes such as, there was something like a hope, maybe it was a 20, 20 million or some massive amount for a little wee opera house in Washington, DC, getting a bailout. I'm going, is this really necessary? You know, this place is already basically built with gold and diamonds. Do we really have to give them another 20 million? You know, so people are recognizing that, that they, they feel like the game is rigged and they're just trying to take vengeance upon whoever they can, including hedge funds, which aren't really the villains here, to be frank. I don't see them as villains. Uh, and in fact, hedge funds, the research shows, are not that uh, lucrative, at least for the users of them, right? The hedge funds are more of a status symbol than a profit maker. And because they come with such high fees, it's, it's, it's incredible that they still exist. So I do think it, it was comical and maybe entertaining to watch, but I don't see the hedge funds as the villains here. Wow, I didn't think we'd have a supporter uh, <laughs> of the hedge funds that would, that would come in so swiftly. So. Well, also because hedge funds actually lead the way in much financial innovation. Sure. And that's one of the reasons why you know, they need uh, accredited investors who have to think over a million dollars in, in net, uh, net um, assets and or net, net worth. And so they are allowed to do many more creative things that can then trickle down to other people later on. See, this that's a good nugget of knowledge here from Fergus Hodgson on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we'll be right back after this, and we'll be right back. we got plenty more questions to throw at Fergus, and I know he's going to have some great responses for us too. The money's coming from somewhere, Mr. Cloud. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting throughout North America and the world on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Fergus, we wanted to bring you back because we got plenty of other questions, my mate. We uh, can't just confine you to one segment. We got to go to two. There's a lot of other things that are, are happening in the news uh, related to uh, related to cryptocurrencies. I know that's been big. But one thing that you've been able to do and uh, something that I, I feel very similar in is that, you know, as someone who is a a public policy professional, more of an uh, economist, I would say, you know, you, you're seeing the trend in various countries, you know, and you have connections to your home nation of New Zealand, uh, to Ireland, to Canada. And there's a lot of stuff happening in Canada right now that probably is not being uh, picked up by a lot of uh, major media sources. I know there's a lot of stuff that you're interested in. How do you see sort of uh, the future of public policy in Canada and, and how things are progressing there? Oh, Canada has so much going on. Yeah, I mean, you know this, you've been a journalist and writer and so has David uh, in Canada. But things are really changing in Canada and particularly because of 
the declining fiscal situation of the nation. So Canada actually has been relatively fiscal, fiscally responsible versus the United States, right? They don't have, they've got the Canada pension plan, which is underfunded, but nowhere near to the degree that the social security system is underfunded. And they've been able, they've had the luxury of being able to engage in this enormous uh, equalization scheme, which is basically sought to help out the poorer provinces such as Nova Scotia and I just said your own one, Quebec, uh, but there. No. And so, <laughs> and so that gravy trade, I fear is coming to an end. And this, there's, I mean, we're fortunate too that there's just incredible research going on from the likes of the City Howe Institute, the Fraser Institute. So I, I you know, we, we can consume this and see that there are winds, you know, it's the, there are the winds of change in Canada right now. And one drawback that I fear the provinces are going to feel as this fiscal tightening happen, happens is that the federal government or the national government of Canada is going to say to the provinces, if you want to get this kind of quasi bailout money or equalization money, you're going to have to do certain things. The strings attached to this money are going to multiply. And I'm concerned that the delegation or federalism within Canada is really on the ropes and will get, you know, str will struggle in the coming years. That's going to heighten tensions. And the, one of the sad things to me too is that, that the province Alberta, which where I have my family connections, that province is basically, has basically gone from a zero debt province to having more debt per capita and as a percentage of GDP than Saskatchewan and British Columbia in a matter of 10 years. So that is embarrassing. And it just means that no more kind of gravy train coming out of Alberta is going to continue. Gravy train. Indeed. Yeah. And so on that, yeah, I mean, Alberta is a tricky one. Uh, questions of diversification and maybe over-reliance on, on the energy sector and what they're going to do next. Um, I know you've touched on this uh, off air with us, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners your thoughts on Western independence. If this is something that is worth taking a serious look at, if there are some serious grievances, uh, and just walk our listeners through what that looks like. Yeah, there's, there's a long history to Western, the move for Western independence, right? So many people, including um, Barry Cooper, maybe the intellectual figurehead of Western independence in Canada, they believe that Alberta and Saskatchewan never should have entered Canada, right? That it was done in a forceful manner. But the, my basic, you know, if we just pull back from the, all the current events and just look at, at the history, it's just that there simply is a different people on the prairies, right? Especially in Alberta, which is, I guess, you know, more uh, isolated from Ontario or the, the sort of the political power centers. And that, tension, much like the tension within the United States is getting more pronounced and more visible, is just becoming more visible, right? So you can see this easily in, let's, let's say, support for the CBC. Most Canadians actually support the CBC and even want to increase funding. You know, don't, don't get me started on this, but that's, a, that's, the, that's, that's the fact of the matter, that most Canadians support the CBC and want to increase funding to even maybe reduce their advertising. But that's just not the case in Alberta, right? They cannot stand, they cannot stand the CBC. And there's just this there's a great deal of work now with the Western Standard, this publication that's, that's risen to try to, I guess, tap into the sentiment that there really is a different culture, a different people on the prairies. And it's very hard to 
reconcile that with what they call Laurentian Canada along the St. Lawrence River. And one of the dividing lines is the anti-American sentiment that is almost, Canadians almost wear on their sleeve in, in Laurentian Canada. But Albertans in particular just don't have that. And many of them would say that's because a lot of them came from America to be there, right? So they, they, have, they, they trace their lineage to the United States, a lot of them, and they just relate to the United States. So to me, that's the fundamental issue, the big cultural gap, which manifests in politics in terms of more independence. And it's not even, it's, I'm not saying that they would be, um, you know, all out for just everyone having the second amendment, but you know, there, there are items, items such as the, such as uh, gun rights that really do divide Western Canada or the Prairie Canada versus the political power. And only about 12% of Canadians live in Alberta. So it's a very small proportion. They I, I can hardly believe Harper, Stephen Harper got elected as prime minister years ago. And I don't think that'll ever happen again. Just very quick yeah, before I, mean, I let David jump in. I know he wants to just for yeah, some yeah. context, uh, not Canadian listeners. Uh, essentially, the Confederation of Canada really was a merging of the English and French peoples. And, you know, all talk of independence has usually been reserved for the French speaking Quebecers, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my side, my side of the world. And uh, yeah, the, this entire like new Western movement uh, is is strange because it's based around, uh, you know, power, regionalism, all of this. David, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is why I, I'm of the opinion that Western independence is kind of a silly concept, not because there aren't economic <laughs> grievances, there sure. certainly are, and not because there aren't political, um, political cultural differences, because there certainly are. But for me, I just don't see the same cultural bonds between the prairies that you see in Quebec, which, in my opinion, was really what drove... Um, I guess you could say the legitimacy of Quebec independence was that shared um, linguistic, religious um, background. It's not as um, it's not as strong, in my opinion, in the West. And communities like Edmonton and Calgary are are very much those multicultural hubs to a lesser extent than Toronto and Montreal, but they are. And so I just, for me, I view this as like, it's, it's political grievances, maybe well-founded political grievances wrapped up in this independence movement that I don't ever see in getting steam because they just don't have those, the same bond that the people of Quebec have. I, I, I'm interested to see if you share some of those views or if you disagree and you think that maybe beyond political culture, the actual, um, that that bond in Alberta and let's say Saskatchewan holds true. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I, I I agree with you on a lot of what you just said there. That it is true that the Quebecers or Quebecois they have a much stronger sense of shared identity. You know, that's just a fact, right? And at any moment in time, and maybe Yale wants to correct me on this. About a third of Quebecers would support independence at the drop of a hat. Right? Forty so forty percent for easy actually. Yeah. More. <laughs> yeah. So pretty strong and Alberta does not have that strong. It is true that a majority of the conservative party voters in, in Alberta would support it right away. It's like two thirds, right? So it is, and it, that is a challenge that you, you note that of course, Edmonton, you know, it's the Bolshevik capital as you know, so it's going to urbanite 
uh, more cosmopolitan place that would not share this independent sentiment. Calgary less so, you know, it's, it's more divided there. So that is, a, that is one challenge that the prairie culture is not as coherent as Quebec. That's true, right? That doesn't mean there are no differences though. It just means that it's not as strong. What the, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. I just, I just prefer delegation all around, right? So, and it's the same way, you know, you mentioned uh, Yale that I have Irish ancestry, right? So I'm familiar with how Ireland got independent. And of course there was a sheer, strong shared sentiment of a uh, distinct identity that we, that they were, I guess, Celtic and then Catholic versus the Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? And obviously that still plays out today in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And all, all this I is made all the more yeah. complicated though, by, by just, you know, the terrible things that are happening on COVID and the international scale of everything. And then really just big disagreements between the provinces. And I think that obviously adds to a lot of this, well, cause at least in Canada, mm -hmm. provinces have more power than in the States. Well, I just think that's changing, you know, but the, I, 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 I do not discount though, David, and maybe you just think this is irrelevant, but the level, excuse me, the level of wealth transfer. I mean, more than 12%, I think it's 12.8% of the Nova Scotian economy is simply net redistribution from other provinces, right? So it's the same, was, same in Prince a, Edward Island. Yeah, maybe even yeah. higher. I can't remember right now. The Fraser Institute had a great report on this, and that makes Nova Scotia more dependent on net transfers from the other provinces than Guatemala is on remittances from the United States. I mean, it's like a third world country, right? They're, 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 they're basically taking money from the other provinces. And I don't, you know, so if you continue to take something like, I think it's something like 5% of the Alberta economy every year in net transfers away from the province. How do you think they're gonna feel after 20 years of that, right? And their basic view is that this will never change, that the on Ontario or the, you know, the capital elites just don't care and they're gonna be just the suckers in confederation forever. And sure, they don't have as, as coherent a, a society or culture or identity as Quebec, that's true, but they, they would believe, maybe this is coming to an end now, that they have the economic wherewithal, the courage that maybe Quebec didn't, they just hate, stopped them from getting over the finish line, you know, when they went for these attempts back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if any resurgence in energy, uh, in the energy sector, I think that probably would give more weight to um, to Western independence when they carried more of, the, they held more of the bag um, for for internet speak, but now it's in it's th there is a growing question of the decarbonization of the economy, whether that or not that's a good thing is a whole nother show. Um, but if that progression continues, can Alberta find other ways like hydrogen and and um, natural gas and other avenues to still be the economic engine for the country? Or do they lose that entirely? Um, and so it's a bit of a double-edged sword in my mind, because when oil was booming, life was good, and maybe they tolerated um, these transfers more. 
because like everyone, you were getting paid one hundred twenty thousand dollars to to drive a rig for for Syncrude. Um, those jobs disappear. That economic wealth disappears. The oil sector is down, and now it's like they've lost some of their bargaining chip. Not that the grievances suddenly disappear, but it's almost like they have a weaker position at the table now because they just don't have the money they used to. No, I mean, you're right about that. They don't have the money they used to, but I see that as, I, I think the, the, the reverse interpretation that in fact, that is especially what will drive the resistance, right? Or the eagerness to get out because as our burdens suffer or struggle, they're going to, all these past grievances will come up, all their frustration will arise. And also as they do try to, I guess, diversify their economy, they'll feel as though they can't do that because Canada's tax system is just not competitive, right? Or that they've been beaten all these years and now they're struggling fiscally and they go, where's our, where's our bailout, right? No one's coming to save us. And so also this whole COVID scenario with the imposition of masks and you know, this, this um, uh, blockage of, of travel basically really hurts the prairies. Uh, because they obviously the, the Rockies is huge for tourism. That's just all disappeared now, basically. And so I, you know, look, it's these are early days, and but the groundwork is being done to make it happen, right? So a, a great intellectual admirer, Marco Navarro Geni, he is uh, he's in Calgary, and he leads the Holtain Research Institute, and he went through in a presentation about a year ago all the features, all the, all the ingredients in place that Quebec had to get independence, right? And relatively great, a great deal of support from the political class of Quebec, surprisingly. And the business class was not so excited about it, <laughs> but, but it's, it's the opposite in Alberta where the political class is just dead against this basically, but the people, the business class is right for it. So that suggests to you, like I said, as, as the tension rises, the business people will get, come more, more in favor. There's, there, there are think tanks getting, are getting behind it. There are publications getting behind it. There are, there are two political parties that are overtly for independence. So there's, there's, there's a greater kind of like bottom-up push that, is, that can, cannot be ignored. Definitely. And we've been speaking with Fergus Hodgson. He is the executive editor and the founder of the Latin American intelligence publication, Econ Americas. You can follow him on Twitter at Ferg, F-E-R-G Hodgson. And uh, I know he's on very competing um, <laughs> social media networks as well. Uh, Fergus, just oh, in your, your last uh, segment here, very quickly, just tell us a little bit about Econ Americas and the work that you guys are doing. Oh, thank you, Gail. Right, so I, I've spent so many years of my life working as a journalist, editor, covering Latin America and traveling the area. And my basic view is that it's an un misunderstood part of the world. And I have built up a network of people who both work with me and whom I know. And our view was that we should basically hasten investment in the area, which is what it lacks. And so we, we consult with people who want to do that. Uh, and we also release uh, monthly backgrounders on different investment, important investment topics. And as I finish my MBA, I'm, I'm going to be ramping this up. Beautiful. That's Fergus Hodgson. Thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Cheers. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation 
featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.